Hello, this is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today is a former British diplomat who held postings around the world in an extraordinary 16-year career in the UK Foreign Office. After stints in Nigeria and Zimbabwe, he worked on counter-terrorism at the British Embassy in Sana'a in Yemen, having volunteered to take the posting after 9-11. He later worked in Baghdad, headed the UK's controversial anti-radicalisation programme Prevent, and in 2010 was posted to Helmand Province, Afghanistan. He left the Foreign Office in 2014, after three years, as the UK's High Commissioner to Trinidad and Tobago. He's now a political risk consultant. His book, How Britain Broke the World, War, Greed and Blunders, From Kosovo to Afghanistan, 1997 to 2021, draws on extensive research and personal experience to map out his theory of how British foreign policy has fueled the decline of the liberal international order. Arthur Snell, welcome to Meet the Writers. Thank you for having me. This is a book then clearly written with huge inside knowledge. And I think it would be really useful to to go back to where that inside knowledge started. You went straight into the Foreign Office from from Oxford. That's right, yes. So I, uh, I didn't grow up with a sort of expectation that I'd go into the diplomatic world and I didn't sort of grow up around people in that world. But I wanted to travel, I wanted to have interesting experiences and and that's that's why I applied to the foreign office so it wasn't a particularly kind of interesting way in but but you know a path that many have trodden in the past yeah absolutely now at the very beginning of the book you say that the international world order broke on the 24th of february this year which of course is russia's invasion of ukraine yeah. but i think that we should go right back and, and and perhaps start with what you mean or what you think britain means by an ethical foreign policy Yes. And that's a really good question, because at the end of the 90s, of course, it's a very different world, a world in which the Cold War has ended. Western countries, particularly the US and the UK, but but not uniquely, felt that they had won the Cold War. And they felt that there was a world in which sort of free market capitalism and democracy would just gradually spread. And it was a sort of one way, one way progress, basically. And within that, then the idea that foreign policy would be less about strategic advantage and rail politique and would be more about uh, having certain ethical and um, ideological standards that we would bring to the world. That started to grow as an idea. And famously, Robin Cook, right at the beginning of the Tony Blair government, spoke about that. And at the time, it felt very much in line with that sort of optimism of the early Tony Blair years, the sort of the new Labour, the cool Britannia era. Mm. The UK, you say, undermined the United Nations. Why do you say that? Well, on various occasions, what the UK has tended to do is talk loudly about the importance of these structures, and particularly the UN Security Council, of which, of course, we're a permanent member, uh, something of a hangover of our great power status at the end of World War II. But then when it doesn't suit us, we've decided to ignore the UN Security Council. So the, the first example of this, and that's why I think the history is important, is 1999 over Kosovo. So the ethical foreign policy led Tony Blair to a view that the Kosovo Albanians, who were, you know, were genuinely facing terrible persecution by Serbia, needed some kind of protection. But because it was proving difficult to reach agreement in the UN Security Council, the view was taken, well, we don't need the UN Security Council anymore. We're, we're above that. You know, uh, we, we have transcended to a level of sort of ethical insight that doesn't tie us down. Now, 
The problem with that is, of course, that it may have been the right thing to do to save costs of our lives, although in the book, my analysis, I think, suggests that it's quite hard to demonstrate that that's actually what happened. But the problem is that when you when you do that and say, well, I'm doing it for human rights reasons in Kosovo, then China and Russia and everyone else might say, well, I'm going to ignore the UN Security Council when it suits me. Mm-hmm. And, and they, they may be making a bad faith argument, but it's an argument you've made it easy for them to make. Yeah. Now, of course, that also holds with Iraq. Now, yes. I know that you were there, actually. Yes. And in fact, you were caught up in a bomb blast yes. there. Yes, right. So I was in Iraq at the height of the insurgency, or, you know, some people would now call it a civil war that broke out after the initial invasion. There was a brief period of of calm, I suppose, as, as Iraqis sort of got used to a world after Saddam Hussein. And then the country descended into sectarian mayhem, extreme violence, bombings, terrorist attacks. And that coincided with the time that I was working in Baghdad. And yes, on one occasion, I was in a building that was targeted by a, a car bomb. Uh, very sadly, some people were killed. I, I was absolutely unharmed. So, you know, I, I was lucky, I guess. And, and of course, many people faced much more uh, risks than I did, uh, particularly soldiers in uniform. But it was being there on the ground and sort of experiencing that at first hand that the whole sort of argument, which still rages on now a bit about whether or not in the long run it was the right thing to do and whether or not, you know, Iraqis were better off without Saddam Hussein. It was quite hard to sort of credit those arguments as sort of intellectual exercises when you were seeing the devastation that was unfolding in Iraq. And of course, the controversy that still kind of shudders around this is MI6 and building support for a British invasion, which was, as we know, unreliable. Exactly. And that's something I I look at in some detail in the book. So as we've already touched on, the, the United Nations Security Council, again, was being sort of circumvented because the US and the UK felt that their case for war was, was so strong that it didn't need the UN if the UN didn't do what they said, although they did try quite hard you know, to get a UN resolution. So it's interesting. That sort of shows that they want the UN on their side, but if they don't get it, they ignore it. But the base and the, the case for war was made very, very strongly on the basis of intelligence generated by British intelligence, by MI6. And this is attested when you see that the head of the CIA, the American intelligence service, complained that he was having to rely too much on on British material. And later on, uh, George Bush, in one of his very important speeches where he sort of made the justification for war just before the invasion, again, cited specifically that he was drawing on on British sources to, to make some of these claims. And of course, as we know, subsequently, this intelligence was all incorrect. So one of the really interesting questions, if had that British intelligence not been there, being fed to the Americans, helping them make the case for the war, would the war have gone ahead? Was the intelligence incorrect because somebody was feeding the wrong intelligence through? Did MI6 want that intelligence to be correct so they just pushed it through? What was the reason for this? Well, I think, you know, both of those things you've said are true. I think a series of things went wrong. I don't think, you know, I should say, I don't think there was a cynical dishonesty in the organisation. I don't think there was disinformation. But what I think was happening was that the instruction was make the case for war, not does Saddam Hussein have WMD? So already the question is wrongly framed. Mm. Then because of the pressure, but also I think because of bad decisions made in people in leadership positions, intelligence that had not been sufficiently validated or analysed was rushed through. So rather than it sort of going into a kind of detailed analytical process where experts who have a lot of context can look at something and say, does this ring true? It was being taken basically straight to Prime Minister, to Tony Blair. Now, a lot of people criticise Blair over Iraq, but I think... 
you have to be fair to, to him that if, if you're the Prime Minister of Britain and the head of MI6 comes and says, look at this amazing intelligence, you know, you're, you're not in a position to say, well, I, I don't believe that or, you know, th- this isn't sufficiently validated. So I'm, I'm not excusing Blair necessarily, but I think the degree to which he's been blamed for the Iraq debacle, I, I think, is, is perhaps overdone. Mm-hmm. So, so I think, yeah, a series of sort of unprofessionalism, a cutting of corners and groupthink probably led led to the, this tragic error, which we, we still live with today. Of course, because one of the things that it did was mean that ISIS could flourish. Exactly. So, so the Iraq that I was working in, this chaotic Iraq riven by violence and civil war, allowed the space for terrorist groups such as ISIS to flourish, but also allowed the space for very, very violent and unpleasant uh, militia groups, often supported by Iran or other external actors. And Iraq to this day remains an incredibly violent, unstable place. And of course, ISIS then flooded into Syria, flooded, you know, across across the world. So when you start to sort of think of the chain reaction of events that come out of, of that invasion, it, it, it is, um, you know, it's just one of the, the terrible tragedies of the century. And then, of course, comes 9-11. Yes. That was a, a big changing time for the world, but also for you personally, because yes. you ended up in Afghanistan. That's right. And so the... Um, I mean, I think for people of my generation, I'm I'm coming up to 50, who started our careers in the late 90s, there was this brief period of, you know, some people talk about the happy 90s. And then you have 9-11 and everything changes because British foreign policy, rightly or wrongly, became obsessed with the issue of Islamist terrorism, with the issue of sort of the greater Middle East region, of instability, of security. And so my own career took me to Yemen and Iraq and then, yes, Afghanistan, but also the way the British state and many of our allies too, you know, almost all of our focus was on those places to the exclusion and to the ignorance of of other very important parts of the world, including Russia and China. Mm. Uh, and the decision to invade Helmand, yes. why was that made? Well, that's a very interesting story and, and it actually goes back to the British military in Iraq. So in, in Basra, in the south of Iraq, the Brits were sort of assigned that part of Iraq. And over the, the couple of years after the initial invasion, uh, they basically lost control. So having gone in, and there was a lot of talk about how experience in Northern Ireland meant that the British Army was particularly good at at dealing with civilian populations and so on, whatever the truth of that, it didn't work in Basra. So the the Brits lost control of Basra and withdrew and, and literally sort of handed over to a combination of Iraqi forces and the Americans. And it was pretty humiliating. And the British military were looking for an opportunity to prove themselves. So what is so tragic and unnecessary about the whole Helmand conflict is that they didn't go there because there was necessarily a need to go there. They went there to try to prove to the Americans that they could still be players. They were still a serious military. And I say this, you know, it's important to put on record. I spent a lot of time around the British military. The individual professionalism is not in doubt. The culture and history of British military is something to behold. But ultimately, that decision was a very political decision and driven by a strange kind of post-imperial hubristic desire by Britain to remain relevant in this sort of global space. And do you think that that same driving force was behind Libya? I think to some extent it was, yes. So the Libya uh, debacle, this takes us to 2011 and, and the Arab Spring. And so one of the big things that's happened in British politics in that time is that David Cameron is Prime Minister. And of course, a lot of people will recall that when he was elected, a lot of his sort of 
stance on on kind of military and security issues was to try to draw a difference, a distinction between Tony Blair's record. And Cameron seemed to intimate that he was going to not sort of deploy our British military into so many costly and dangerous wars and that he was going to be much more cautious. And, and that, that sort of felt relevant. But then strangely, in, in 2011, you had the Arab Spring and of course, protests broke out across the Arab world, notably including Libya. And Colonel Gaddafi, you know, the rather crazy ruler of that country, found himself fighting a civil war. And, and Britain and France in particular took the decision under the guise of the responsibility to protect, i.e. to protect Libyan civilians from Gaddafi, took the decision to unseat him, to push for a regime change. And, you know, notably, Barack Obama, who, of course, was sort of drawn into this, very much a reluctant participant, uh, he said he it was probably the biggest foreign policy failure of his time as president. So what happened in Libya, as had happened in different ways, but with some similarity in Iraq and Afghanistan, that by you know, foreign intervention, it's quite easy to sort of topple a regime to to take away a ruling system, but it's very hard to replace it with something. Libya remains to this day a failed state in an ongoing civil war, uh, different parts of the country controlled by uh, different groups. And, you know, it, it's almost as if we, we don't learn these lessons. You know, the Cameron in 2011 went to Benghazi, gave a speech, did the thing that British leaders often do, where they, they travel to the, the theatre of operations of one of what they feel has been a great success story. And there's cheering crowds and they say, I'm here in free Benghazi and it's wonderful. And, you know, within a year of him having done that, Benghazi was a war zone mm. and remains so to this day. I mean, it does seem that perhaps some lessons were learned because by 2013, Britain was saying it didn't want to directly intervene in Syria. That's true. And also, uh, Britain then withdrew from Helmand in 2014. So I think I think lessons were, were learned very slowly. And certainly, you know, the British public in particular, I think, with the, the body count from Helmand, became very alive, uh, you know, to, to what was happening. I think the Syria case, though, in a way, it, it's interesting. I can almost turn the argument on its head there, because my argument is not a simple one about intervention is bad, you know, that because I think, you know, the world is a very complicated place. All foreign policy decisions are, are finely balanced. What's strange about the Syria case is that in Syria, you had Bashar al-Assad, who was carrying out massacres of his population. He was using chemical weapons. You know, he did have WMD. He was gassing civilian populations. And we, we didn't take action. We weren't willing to protect those civilians. And yet, strangely, both in Libya and Iraq, where these things were not in the happening, we did intervene. So that there's a strange sort of lack of logic to the way that the, the British have, have behaved in, in these sort of successive crises. So, essentially, if we're going to apportion blame here... Mm. Are we looking at mismanagement within the within the Foreign Office and the security services, or is it a failure of leadership within the government? I think we, we have to look at, at lots of levels. And, and of course, you know, we're having this conversation in the week that Boris Johnson has been forced out of out of office partly because of a kind of consistent, chaotic incompetence. So I think leadership is important. But what goes with that is actually that, that as a country, there's a cultural question because as a country, I think Britain 
is is very confused about what it is and what it can achieve. You know, we're not a small country. You know, I, people who say, oh, it's just a small island somewhere. Well, geographically, that's not correct. But also, actually, we have a large population. We have a large economy. You know, we're on the UN uh, Security Council. We, we have a large military. So it's we're not irrelevant, but we're not actually a superpower. You know, we can't actually change the weather on our own. So, so you, you have those, um, those sort of contradictions that we haven't quite figured out where we sit as this sort of middle order power. And clearly, Brexit suggests that we're still grappling with that, because what we're saying by doing Brexit is that we don't need alliances, you know, we're too big for the EU, we can do these things on our own. But I want to go back to something else you said, Georgina, about, about the Foreign Office and, and sort of related agencies, because I think if you look at the funding, particularly the Foreign Office, it has been cut back and cut back. So over the same era that I, I look at in this book, where Britain has been making these very kind of expansive foreign policy uh, decisions, it's actually been trying to do it with less and less resource. Mm. Now, we have a smaller diplomatic service than Italy, and that might surprise some people, much smaller than France and Germany. And so we seem to think that investing in foreign offices, in diplomats, isn't worth the money. And it's odd because actually, whilst diplomats sort of look expensive, you know, they drive nice cars and they live in nice parts of town, compared to any military operation or compared to, you know, the NHS or, or whatever, the Foreign Office is, is a microscopic bit of the government budget. It would be very easy to invest in it properly to drive Britain's long-term national interest. Mm. But we choose not to. I mean, looking at this as, a, as an outsider, you and I first met in Zimbabwe. Yes. And for years, I have been speaking to the Foreign Office about what's happening in the country. And it does seem to me that there is a lack of institutional memory, that I am having to say the same things again and again and again to new people who've come in who simply do not understand the history. And I don't understand myself how somebody who's, I don't know, 25 years old and taking his first foreign posting can possibly know what to do without the wisdom of all of those who came before. And it just doesn't seem to me that that's been passed on. No, you're absolutely right. And and anybody, you know, you, you've got a personal relationship with Zimbabwe, but anybody who has that kind of experience where they, they know a country and they consistently want to engage with the Foreign Office about it will find the same frustration. So what this lack of institutional memory, one of the ways in which the Foreign Office has destroyed its institutional memory is by cutting to the bone its research and sort of expert cadre. So what you tend to have in, 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 in the diplomatic services, you have sort of rotating generalists, the, the sort of the 25-year-old that you describe, and of course I was once one of those, and then sitting behind that, you need the real experts, you know, the person who's been a specialist looking at Southern Africa for, for you know, their entire career or whatever. Now, those people have been cut out. They've just simply, they've decided that it's not worth the money, which again is extraordinary because you're talking about small individuals and, and the cost saving to the taxpayer is, is minuscule. So there's no institutional memory. I mean, the Foreign Office closed down its library. You know, there, there are all kinds of very strange choices made. But these are choices driven by simple cost cutting, simply year on year, the Treasury saying you need to have a smaller budget than you had last year. Arthur, this is such an interesting book, and we haven't got time to go through it in any kind of detail. But I did want to pick up on your chapter seven, which is about Russia and the London laundromat, because it's particularly relevant when we're looking at Boris Johnson and his connection with the Lebedev family. Yes. Tell us more. Well, so Britain's policy to Russia is has always existed sort of on two levels, and I try to describe this in the book. There's the level where we are a hawkish player in NATO. You know, we are, we've got, as I've mentioned already, we've got quite a big military. We work closely with the Americans. We've stood firm on Ukraine. We've been supplying the weapons. But at the same time, literally sort of in the same, in the same era, we've been making it very easy 
for the Russian elite, including people right up close to President Putin, to use London as, as a laundromat for their money. And that is that exists at the institutional level, the listings of shares that you know raise billions of dollars for Russian companies, but it exists at the personal level. The concierge services to the elite that London is so famous for, the, the wonderful estate agencies and private education and, and you know all that goes with it if you sort of wander the streets of Belgravia. But coupled with that, you know, Britain brings with it a special a special sort of power, if you like, which is our offshore territories. So we combine the, the London uh, hub of sort of expert advisors with this string of, you know, tiny former colonies, places like the British Virgin Islands, Gibraltar, uh, Cayman Islands, places which are basically exist solely to launder dirty money. And it, it's quite bizarre, really, because, again, these things are... If we consider the British economy, these things are not important. You know, a government could decide it is not in our long-term interest to continue to do this. But governments don't decide to do that. And you have to conclude that a lot of that is down to the power and influence of the lobby that goes with these industries, you know, the lawyers, the bankers, the the consultants and so on. So is uh, Boris Johnson's connection with Russia something that really should be uh, investigated? I think it should. And again, I, I wouldn't want, you know, there's a risk of sounding a bit conspiratorial here. I don't believe that he's some kind of agent of Russia or even that he's necessarily kind of being blackmailed or, or, or in some kind of compromised uh, situation. But when we talk about the, the Lebedev, so let, a quick illustration of, of, of who these people are. Alexander Lebedev, the senior member of the family, was posted in London as a Russian intelligence agent, a KGB agent, right at the end of the Cold War. And London, of course, is one of the prime assignments. If, if you're a, a high flyer in the organisation, you'll be sent to London. So, so that gives us a sense of who this guy is. He, he left the KGB, of course, Russia, you know, the USSR evolved into Russia. He became a very, very successful businessman, an oligarch. At one point, he was he was genuinely one of the richest people in the world. Less so now, his, some of his investments haven't worked, but he's still a, a fabulously wealthy person. And with his son, Evgeny Lebedev, they've become a feature of, of the sort of British high society circuit. They're the proprietors of the Evening Standard and an independent newspaper at different times. And, you know, their shareholdings have evolved over time. And they've become politically influential. And there's no debate that Boris Johnson is very close to these people. He's he's been up front. Well, he's eventually been up front about that. He ennobled Yevgeny Lebedev, who, of course, now is a member of the House of Lords. It means he's for life a legislator in, in our parliament. And in March of uh, 2018, and this is this is something that has sort of crystallised in the week that we're talking, Georgina. In March of 2018, Boris Johnson, when Foreign Secretary, had attended a summit, a NATO summit, to talk about Russian aggression, particularly in the light of the Salisbury attack, the Novichok attack, which, of course, killed a, a British citizen. Boris Johnson had been at this summit, by definition, a sensitive national security issue, and he went straight from that summit to a, the private residence in Italy of Alexander Lebedev, the former KGB agent, and according to some reporting, was planning to have a back-channel conversation with Sergei Lavrov, who is uh, Putin's foreign minister. So, I mean, this sort of stuff is, if that's not ripe for investigation, I don't know what is. Yeah. The book also goes into China. You talk about oil and Saudi Arabia and influence. You also look at India and the politics of empire, all of these huge, huge subjects. 
projects hmm. and the US and the UK special relationship and, of course, Brexit and Britain's yeah. now isolation in Europe. And I would urge people, to obviously, to pick up the book to, to read more about that. I wanted to ask you, though, about the Prevent programme. Yes. Hugely controversial. Yes. Uh, why didn't it work? I think it didn't work because the government spent a lot of time talking about it rather than actually trying to do what it, the underlying issue is. Just explain yes. what it was. Yeah, so the Prevent programme, the idea behind it is something that I think most people could agree with, is that if you have people who are being drawn into radicalisation, you know, and this was at a time, of course, we'd had the 7-7 bombings in London, you know, one of the biggest terrorist attacks in our history. There was no debate that there was an issue. And the idea was it would be much better to prevent, that being the word, people from being drawn into a kind of militant radicalisation rather than deal with the aftermath when you're, you're effectively trying to catch a criminal about to plant a bomb. That's easy to say. Now, how to do it? The, the problem is, very quickly, uh, the government gets drawn into questions of ideology, of religion, because, you know, bluntly, a lot of this was about Islam. Now, I'm not saying that Islam's a violent religion. That You know, that's something that people have alleged. Well, I don't agree with that. But at that time, there was genuinely a national security threat from people claiming to act in the name of Islam. So these issues are issues that it's incredibly difficult for governments to deal with effectively. And I think, in, I think the government made one or two mistakes. One was trying to be, if you like, the sort of picking the winners, saying that, you know, these Muslim faith leaders are good people and we, we should encourage them and these ones are bad people and we should objectify them. Now, if you want to discredit uh, you know, a faith leader, probably giving him a government endorsement is a quick way to do it. So I think that was one mistake that was made. Another huge mistake was actually constantly to talk about prevent, which sounds just, you know, just the word is a is a word that implies a sort of security state, a state trying to control people, trying to control the way they think. And I think what the government should have done, we've been a lot more subtle, should have tried to find subtle ways to encourage people to be open to a wide range of, you know, of sort of ideological and, and other influences and try to discourage, of course, the, the, the sort of radical uh, side, particularly the militant, uh, violent radicals, but not in a way that you keep sort of giving lectures about this is our counterterrorism strategy, this is prevent, this is why we're doing it. Because the moment you start talking to people about counterterrorism, you're sort of suggesting that they are a potential terrorist. Now, for a lot of people, law-abiding citizens who might happen to be Muslims. It's a deeply offensive basis on which to have a discussion. I mean, so would you accept then that it did stoke conflict within society, that very small children were sometimes being picked on in schools, that it actually was a, a terrible, terrible thing for Britain uh, socially? I think that's right. And I think it it came at a time when, of course, unsurprisingly, there were tensions because there was a genuine national security question and it, it enhanced those tensions. But it also, it put a lot of people in a very invidious situation. You know, people I know who, for example, are school teachers who would say, well, I, I, didn't, I didn't get into teaching to be a counter-terrorism operative. Mm. And the government was sort of saying, no, it's your job as teachers to be part of this system. And, and what's sad about it is that I think a society at ease with itself would be able to say, 
our values are the things are the strongest counteraction yeah. to, to radical, violent uh, militancy, not a slightly weird, sinister programme. Arthur Snell, thank you so much for talking to me. Thank I cannot me. recommend this book highly enough. It's called How Britain Broke the World, War, Greed and Blunders from Kosovo to Afghanistan, 1997 to 2021. It's published by Canonbury Press. And if you want to understand how we live now and what's driven it and what the future might hold, then you really should have a look at this book. This is Meet the Writers. Thanks to the production team of Nora Hull and Lillian Fawcett and, of course, to my guests Arthur Snell and to you for listening. You can download this show and previous episodes from our website or app from SoundCloud, Mixcloud or iTunes. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. <laughs>